This is Criterion Cast Chronicles, Episode 3. Tonight we'll be discussing the April 2016 Criterion Collection lineup. I'm Ryan Gallagher, and joining me tonight, I have a number of folks from CriterionCast.com to talk about the titles this month. I have David Blakesley. Hey, David. Hello, Ryan. Scott Nye. Hey, Scott. Ahoy. I have Aaron West. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Ryan. Hey, everybody. And we have Mark Herney. Hey, Mark. Hey, everyone. All right, guys, we are back for episode three. Uh, a pretty impressive month overall, I think. Although I think this month might probably, I feel like this month is going to go down as kind of like a underrated month overall, just because I don't see a whole lot of people talking about some of these titles, even though I feel like these are all, you know, very impressive additions to the collection, all that, you know, I'd imagine that some of these are going to end up on people's uh, best of the year, end of the year list. Um, and this might just be a matter of, you know, we're in between Barnes and Noble sales or we're in between 50% off sales. And so people typically wait on titles released in, you know, these kind of months in between sales, which is kind of unfortunate, but uh, it's nice that we now have this show to kind of gather around and sing the praises of these titles uh, as we march through the year. So tonight um, we're going to go uh, through the spine numbers as they were released in April. Um, tonight, starting off with uh, Only Angels Have Wings, Scott will be uh, leading the discussion on that, and then we'll uh, move forward. Um, I guess uh, let's just jump into it. So, Scott, let's talk about Only Angels Have Wings. Let's. Uh, this is Howard Hawks' 1939 film, one of the best years, or one of the best films of one of cinema's legendary years. Uh, this was a film that I saw many years ago. I was kind of getting into Hawks and was expecting more of a comedy because I was, you know, really into Bring It Baby and His Girl Friday and all those movies at the time. And it's not, you know, there's comedy in it, but it's not a very funny film. It's really about these guys, as is typical with uh, Hawks drama. It's kind of about these guys on sort of in a sort of purgatory, a sort of cheerful purgatory. I like to think of it as, and they're all. Uh, operating this airline, delivering mail and anything else that needs delivering out of a fictional South American town called Branca. Uh, and in enters, uh, why did I think, forgive me already, uh, Jean Arthur. And she's sort of our guide through this uh, world of manly men and the deeds they do and meets up with Cary Grant, who runs the airlines. It's a very atypical performance for Grant. He doesn't have the sort of suave, suave uh, debonair nature that we're kind of used to with him is this harder edge that Hawks brings out in him. And I think he's really effective in the film. Uh, revisiting it, I didn't quite fall in love with it immediately the way that I gather many other fans of Howard Hawks have. You know, this kind of held up as one of his absolute masterpieces. As far as his airplane films go, I kind of prefer Ceiling Zero myself, which might be heresy for my fellow Hawksians, but I'm going to stick with it. You know, this it never really finds space i think for gene arthur uh so much so that uh, film critic dan sleet remarked that she has to eventually pull a gun on carrie grant in order to assert her place in the narrative and i think that's a pretty apt observation and the uh finale kind of comes out of nowhere too but in the meantime you know it's such a pleasurable film to spend time with these characters and to spend time in this world you know the dialogue doesn't have that rapid fire nature that we love in like his girl friday but it has that sort of uh overlapping nature and all these characters kind of existing on top of one another. And what I really like about Hawks' dramas is that, I mean, as much as people remark on the manly man nature and getting to uh, 
sort of spend time in the sort of hangout environment. And there is pleasure in that, but it's also ultimately kind of a film about uh, loneliness um, and these guys who are kind of cut off from any other avenues of ability to make money or ability to relate to your fellow people and certainly ability to settle down, you know, and build a family or anything, you know, this is kind of all they have left is each other. And there's a real sadness to that, especially right away, you know, guys in the crew start dying. So even these people that they're close to, that's not really a lot for them to hang on to. Uh, And even though, you know, I have some reservations about the thing as a whole, this does have, I think some of Hawks's best scenes in his career, you know, the fatal landing that sort of introduces us, to the workings of the airline is such a tense scene, even without you know seeing the plane basically until it crashes, uh, and the model work there. By the way, this is all done you know kind of on miniatures and stuff. It's really impressive. I saw some remarks that some of the model work's a little hokey and something you have to kind of get over, but the physicality of it's still pretty wrenching. I mean, we see the wing break off the plane. I really feel that. Uh, the other scene that really stood out to me for sure is the. Uh, when they all sing the peanut vendor song and such a great, you wouldn't expect a musical number in the middle of an adventure film, but it's just as rousing as anything in Hawks's proper musical. Gentlemen prefer blondes. Um, and almost more so because the character, there's no environment we're introduced to in which these characters would break out in song. Uh, but you know, the rest of the film just, it's a great hangout vibe, some light jokes. I love the kind of toss stuff. Uh, yes, they have no bananas line about, uh, mm-hmm. the plane meeting up with the ship. Uh, but I was, and I was really impressed with the way Criterion brought this to disc. I've been kind of iffy on some of these Sony transfers, uh, like 310 to Yuma or on the waterfront. I find that they kind of boost the contrast and kind of create these kind of harsh lines you wouldn't necessarily get if you saw on a film. But this has a nice softness to it. It kind of has a flicker underneath of it. And the contrast is not so stark that kind of washes that out. It really has a very natural appearance to it. So I was really pleased with that. And the special features, I think, are really well curated and well introduced. I like that Ben Burt has somehow transferred into being a film scholar, despite the fact that he's the guy who made the lightsaber sound for God's sake. Uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, between his kind of, their kind of input about the airline industry at the time, kind of the public's fascination with airplanes. I really thought that was a really interesting special feature and, Everything else in there really adds up to a nice package. Did anyone else get to this? Had anyone been familiar with Hawks before this film, or how did you find it? Well, actually, Mark and I just happened to have recorded an episode about this film a couple of days ago. Um, You're beating uh, me to all this. <laughs> actually, <laughs> Very just bad fresh. timing. We'd, we'd been planning it for a while. But, uh, uh, yeah, I enjoyed I, I enjoy Hawks, period. Uh, I, I think I'm with you. I, I, I like the film a lot, and it had, we had many of the same takes, I think. Uh, actually, one thing we didn't pick up on that you did was the isolation. Uh, that, that's that's very, very true. Um, but we, I thought it, the air, airline scenes were very, um, very exciting, uh, at times harrowing. I, I think it was a well-done movie. I, I think there were some weak parts. Uh, I, I personally singled out, uh, maybe hated on uh, Gene Arthur a little bit. Uh, well, Hawks yeah, kind of did, too, at the time. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> he did. I also loved the uh, the um, Howard Hawks and his aviation movies uh, feature. That was really enjoyable. Yeah, I love the David Thompson interview. It's it's a pretty short one, but he manages to kind of really set the film in its context uh, pretty well. And it, he definitely talked about it uh, a number of things in here, like you know how he got to it with uh, you know following up on bringing up baby and um, you know just some of the 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 themes that I didn't really pick up on when I watched it. 
I listened to a little bit of the radio adaptation too. I didn't listen to the whole thing, but it was fun to kind of listen in on that. Yeah, I'm glad they presented that with uh, the chapter marks and everything, because sometimes they'll just play it like over the menu. Mm-hmm. I know Master of Cinema does that a lot, and there's no real way to sit down and listen mm-hmm. to it. It's a good way to kind of revisit the the film, uh, you know, listening to the the radio uh, adaptation. And I I'm with you, Scott. I think the, uh, the really the the planes. I mean, you could tell that there was some model work with some of the planes, but there were some other pe- parts where I felt like it was a, a camera in a, a an airplane. I talked about this a, a little bit. Um, that it was. I was just amazed for a, a 1939 film. Really, the way that the um, the um, really the model work and the special. Uh, special effects were done. There's even a, a special feature about that, the one that you mentioned with Ben Burt, where they kind of do a, a mock-up uh, of the way that it probably was done at the time. That's just really great to to see a nice kind of view into 1939 special effects. Yeah, my wife and I, we watched it a few weeks ago, so I don't really have an in-depth take, but I did enjoy this kind of sense of, you know, the, the cutting edge of aviation technology as the audiences were experiencing this for the first time, just to kind of, you get a sense of of uh, you know life out on the frontier, the kind of exotic location, and yeah, a real palpable sense of danger, and uh, just a reminder, even for you know those of us who live in an era where you know planes pretty much go anywhere, everywhere, without you know much trouble, that this was a very risky venture, and uh, lives were definitely on the line. I, I felt like yeah, this is a this is a glimpse into a, a kind of a, a pastime, and and uh, you you get to feel some of those emotions and some of that that grip of adventure, but uh, very real risk of guys just making a living in a very uh, dangerous industry. Yeah, they have a really good sense of place. I'm glad you mentioned the environment because it was all built on a soundstage. Of course, being 1939, they weren't doing much location work except for uh, you know the canyons and stuff, which you could easily find in Southern California, especially at the time. These kind of desolate spaces. But I think with the set work and all that, they really do a good job of uh, convincing you of this environment. You know, it's a fictional town. It doesn't really actually exist anywhere, but it, you get a sense of the way that you know it's a bit of a colonialist atmosphere to be fair it's yeah, kind of the way definitely. westerners see south america as this exotic yeah. locale um but i don't think it treats kind of the local unfairly you know there's a kind of uncomfortable moment when gene arthur is suddenly okay with the men following her as long as they're americans um but uh other than that i think it treats the south american characters pretty fairly and you know there's differences in the way and you know the language barrier is certainly there but there's not really uh, sort of overtly racist attitude, I felt. One thing that I wanted to mention about this release is that this is the first appearance of uh, Francesco Francavia's art in the Criterion Collection. He's a, a comic book artist that I've been following for quite a while now, and uh, it's so exciting to have him you know, be a part of the collection in this way. Yeah, I really like the whole scheme of it, of the kind of black and white and yellow. Uh, the disc art, too, is some of my favorite that they've ever done, with the playing mm-hmm. kind of... Mm-hmm. It's nice, uh, only the second uh, Hawks film in the collection with Red River, too, so it's nice to see them add another title. WB has so many of those films under lock and key, but who knows, maybe they'll peek out. Did anyone buy the the other Blu-ray, the TCM Blu-ray that was released, I think, last year, but then went out of print and was kind of going for a lot of money before Criterion announced this one? No, and I'm glad I held off. (laughs) Me too. Yeah, no kidding. It's always funny. This one's fine. It's always funny whenever that happens and then everyone, you know, immediately regrets either not selling their disc before Criterion made the announcement or, you know, or even just buying it uh, at all. It was fun seeing also in this release, um, 
and this is something that Criterion often does where, where they'll include the trailer for a film, but most often the trailer is just, you know, uh, in pretty bad shape. And it's always fun to see those trailers and see how bad this film might look, you know, in a, in a, you know, in a worst case scenario, I guess, for a, a, re- a home video release of a movie when you can see like, oh, this movie looked terrible when it was, you know, like on VHS or older DVDs. But, um, and then once you compare that to like the final image on the screen when you're watching the Blu-ray, it's just like, oh, wow, this is, they really did something here. If Criterion could go somewhere else with Howard Hawks's films, you know, what do you think the next, is there a next, uh, you know, most obvious pick for them to do was, are there, were there any other films, you know, like on Laserdisc that maybe they had done uh, a Howard Hawks release that they might be looking to upgrade? I've never really taken like an in-depth look at their Laserdisc days. I mean, there are a few Hawks films that aren't on DVD. So those kind of stand out, you know, uh, I think Girl in Another Port is one. Uh, the Big Sky is definitely a big standout. Um, as far as kind of films that are still thought of as well, uh, Ceiling Zero too, for that matter. It's a Warner Brothers title. I'm really surprised that Warner Archive hasn't put it out yet, but that's kind of hanging off in the distance there. But then, you know, from there, it kind of gets to be like, uh, what's really the advantage for some of these? You know, I mean, they're not really as highly regarded as Red River or Only Angels Have Wings. Uh, Warner Brothers for years is. I think needed to upgrade Rio Bravo. So it'd be nice if they just handed that off to Criterion to take care of. Hmm. But otherwise, I mean, some of these films are really well serviced. I guess you could, they could go think from another world. I don't think that really has any, I don't know it has that Japanese Blu-ray those kind of panned recently. I think you might be onto something with that one, just given like, you know, the fact that they, you know, are doing cat people, which was also one of those RKO Blu-rays in Japan. And then that's true. You know, maybe mm-hmm. Magnificent Ambersons might happen from Criterion. And so, um, and that, which was also one of those Japanese RKO Blu-rays. So I think those, that line might be something to keep an eye on as far as like what Criterion might also be working on. Well, and to have and have not wasn't one of the one, the Bogey Bacall movies that Warner Brothers recently put out, right? No, no, it's listed as, uh, on, in, in the, uh, in the Warner, uh, archive collection, but with no release date. So oh, yeah, nothing yet. Similar with His Girl Friday. I mean, that's amazing. Well, that's, me yeah, that public that's domain. Blu-ray, but mm-hmm. My vote is a, a, a screwball tr- comedy trilogy with 20th Century, Bringing Up Baby, and His Girl Friday. So <laughs> it'll never happen, but I, I'll wish. <laughs> that would be lovely. Well, in the meantime, I, I would say that uh, we got good service with Only Angels Have Wings. I think it's a really nice little package, and I think it's well worth the money. You get a nice two-hour film and all these mm-hmm. great supplements with real kind of in-depth stuff. You know, We didn't even mention the excerpts from the Bogdanovich interview. Um, which anytime you get to hear these old school directors talk, I think is always really amusing because they have kind of a mix of contempt for the whole interview <laughs> process and just appreciation that people are paying attention to them. All right. Well, let's go to Barcelona next. Uh, from, from South America to Europe. Uh, Mark, you'll be uh, <laughs> discussing this film t- tonight for us. This release came um after many years of being teased at by Whit Stillman he would you know whenever he would be interviewed someone would get around to asking him about whether or not Barcelona was coming to the Criterion collection to kind of you know finish this trilogy of films that Criterion had started with Metropolitan and The Last Days of Disco and uh he would often say oh yeah Criterion is working on it and sure enough here it is it's uh you know a nice you know end to this trilogy of films i think um, it's, you know, it 
I think they did a great job, you know, continuing on the cover art. And then uh, I didn't get the box set, but I did go out and get the the Barcelona single release itself. And um, I had a lot of fun watching it. But Mark, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you thought of watching it uh, this time around? Sure, sure. Thank you. Uh, well, the first question I wanted to ask you guys was, you know, if if the this, of course, gets back to Metropolitan and the UHB, the urban hot uh, bourgeoisie, does that would, would we be considered the CHB, the criterion hot bourgeoisie, do you think? I mean, would that be oh, appropriate if we weren't already, we are now. <laughs> we speak we like are, what Stillman writes. <laughs> we are the CHB. <laughs> so yeah, this this was a, a, a film for me. I had seen uh, Metropolitan only, and so when we were talking about uh, you know looking at these films, I was pretty excited to actually watch this one for the first time, and it gave me an excuse to watch uh, Last Days of Disco too, and of course. Um, these being a trilogy of films, but they also uh, that were released Metropolitan first in 1990, Barcelona in 94, Last Days of Disco in 98. And they they really Barcelona is kind of the it's the second film, but really uh, chronologically is the third film um, you know that takes place. So and it really, well, if we want to get into the um, the the plot. Uh, Ted is a stuffy white guy from Illinois uh, who works in sales, and um, Fred, Ted, and Fred, uh, who is a officer in the U.S. Navy, comes to visit him in uh, Barcelona, Spain. So and yeah, so this is it's another really uh, kind of an extension, I think, of what he had, uh, what Stillman had originally put forth in Metropolitan. Um, I kind of look at his films almost like, um, I, and I haven't really, still kind of uh, wrestling with this a little bit, but they they feel like kind of modern classic films to me. I mean, they're very uh, a very dry humor, but also very uh, intelligent, and it, it's the kind of film that you would almost be think people would be put off by. But you know, Metropolitan was uh, a hit, made for about three hundred thousand dollars, and made about three million. So he made this one. Uh, four years later, um, he's not particularly fast with in how he makes films. Um, he he has one coming out in 2016, um, but uh, it was nice to you know get this one and make the uh, the the trilogy. This one had been out of print uh, from Warner Brothers on DVD, and you know fetching a little bit of a higher price. So it was nice to uh, to to get that um, you know in in the collection and uh, complete the trilogy, so to speak. I mean, we are completists, so we were kind of uh, missing this if, uh, you know, you are a, a Whit Stillman fan. And, uh, you know, some of what I, I think of with Whit Stillman, he reminds me of, um, I guess, a little bit of Wes Anderson. And I he even references Wes Anderson uh, a bit uh, when he's talking about um, people not filming J.D. Salinger uh, in the uh, the interview from Hillary Weston on the Criterion site. So I, I just kind of the he, sometimes he seems to hit these kind of same he's smart, you know, the same dry type of humor. Once in a while, we even see some uh, comedic timing, I think, a bit with Wes Anderson. And he reminds me of, you know, I, I wonder 
how um, folks feel about him being in the collection too, because I, I haven't really delved into that and don't really care that much. I mean, I, I think he's worthy um, of being in the collection, and I, I'm curious how uh, other folks feel if they you know think that he is is worthy. Because I know you know Wes Anderson kind of draws some ire, and uh, you know I wonder if uh, Whit Stillman does too from you know folks that are you know feeling a, a little bit um, um, you know like they he doesn't belong i guess you would say so probably i mean real real quick probably not it seems like um what wes anderson is so much more well known in amongst the general audience that i think um many more people will probably have an opinion about wes anderson than have an opinion about Whit stillman um mm. I'd, I'd imagine that the people who have seen uh Whit stillman's films are you know much smaller in you know in size and so i think um you know maybe if more people knew him then they would have a stronger opinion about it like i remember going when we first started the podcast years and years ago we watched metropolitan and i hated it hmm. uh, and i thought this guy was a hack i thought like and you know I, I definitely you know voiced that on that episode of metropolitan way back in 2009 um but having now gone and seen last days of disco and now watch barcelona um i i think i've turned uh, a corner on on appreciating him a little bit more um i certainly don't you know uh, hate him the way that i did mm. you know back then nice yeah i mean it, th- this is a good it's a good addition too i mean it ports over the the supplements from the the old warner um dvd and uh, they add of course some of their own so that the commentary is uh, existing uh, they added a great video essay again i love the video essays that criterion does so this is easily uh, my favorite uh, just another you know lovely look at the the filmmaker stillman and uh, probably gives the you know the, the best insight i think even more so than uh, than stillman does because it does talk about his his early work um, and a lot of, you know, there's the, a brief documentary that seems in the Today Show seem a little bit more of, uh, you know, kind of promotional, uh, but there is the Dick Cavett show and Charlie Rose that get into, you know, it's an interview with him and the, uh, the deleted scenes are nice. They kind of show what, uh, how this film could have been more political and less of a romantic comedy. I, I think that's one of the, the points with Stillman. I, I don't know if people always uh, realize this, but you know, for his dry humor and you know his wit, he these are romantic comedies, and I was able to watch in that vein all three of them uh, with my wife over the past month, and we had a lot of fun reviewing, you know, and discuss. Well, we didn't really discuss them much, but I did ask her favorite, which you know, her like me, I, I do go with. I think the common opinion that uh, Metropolitan is my favorite, and. Um, almost diminishing returns when you get to Barcelona and then last days of, of disco, but they're all worthy in their own right. And they all tell kind of a little bit of a different story, like, you know, almost more contained with the after parties and Metropolitan. And then you get the, um, you know, the, actually the folks going out with the last days of disco. And then this, of course, takes place in another country. So it's a nice, nice set. I, I hope, uh, you know, folks will uh, pick up the, the box set uh, either now or you know looking at july for the criterion sale yeah i'm definitely looking forward to picking it up and i just actually grabbed the uh, andre gregory wallace sean set because uh, i hadn't owned any of those films and found that for real cheap so i like this uh trend that criterion's on of boxing <laughs> up their old releases for people like me who don't pick up everything <laughs> right away it, it's a good excuse to go back into them 
It does make me wonder why they haven't done the same thing with the Antonioni trilogy. Um, Maybe, I don't know, maybe they just want to keep selling those uh, closer to the full SRP. But, uh, you know, when when La Note was was released, I thought, well, you know, the the films are so far apart in spine number, I can see why they didn't box them up. But uh, that's definitely not the case with these last two uh, trios that they've uh, you know, put out in slipcase editions. So, uh, probably at this point, the Antonioni ship has sailed. But uh, it would be nice to get that in a little. It might slip be in sh- Costco in this uh, Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Perhaps it's not too late yet. Well, and also the Lean Coward set. That's like films in the six hundreds, and then what seventy mm-hmm. something for yeah. Brief Encounter, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Well, I actually am, am with you, Ryan. I, with my my first take of Metropolitan was also not. I, I think I liked it a little more than you. It sounds like you really, really uh, didn't take to it too well. But I, I it's it's tough to a, a a tough type of film to get into. You know, the the it's very stuffy. You know, it's very preppy. Uh, but and actually, I, I saw Last Days of Disco second, and I, I actually appreciated that a lot more. Um, and then this was my first viewing of Barcelona, and like Mark and and like you, I've I've kind of come around to well, Mark liked Metropolitan the first time, but I, I've really come to appreciate uh, with Stillman as well. I, I think he he just really has a unique voice, and and I like that he does take his time, and he he, he uh, has this Harvard dialogue, and it actually sounds uh, really good coming out of uh, the mouths of you know, Chris Eigman and it's uh, uh, the other gentleman's name, uh, Taylor Nichols. Uh, on in all three films i think this one actually especially uh th- some really funny scenes uh and um i think the funniest is when they're talking about the graduate ending <laughs> and uh, uh and, and just that says so much about the character how you know one guy just take has a different i'm not, not going to spoil the graduate even though probably everybody's seen it but uh just his takeaway from the uh the ending and and his um who he's rooting for really uh defines him as a person and uh, and Chris Eigenman plays kind of that scoundrel uh, who doesn't really have a lot of self awareness and uh, and thinks everybody's anti American, but they're actually probably anti him. <laughs> so yeah, no, I I, th- I think they're, it's actually a really interesting trilogy that I think a lot of people should see, and hopefully now uh, with uh, these this edition, people uh, will will get to yeah. it. Yeah, Scott, you had a chance to see the new Whit Stillman movie, uh, Love and Friendship at the Sundance Film Festival this year? Yes, it's so good. I can't wait to see it again. It's so funny. And so everything you would like about uh, Whit Stillman getting into Jane Austen, so refined and Hmm. lovely. And I just saw the trailer again the other night. And so really stoked to see it again. Comes out this weekend. I'm hearing great things. Yeah. And I, I, that one is, I think Amazon is one of the producers now, or they kind of acquired it. So it will be interesting to see how early that ends up uh, streaming maybe on Amazon Prime. Yeah, their general business model is to give things a decent life in theaters, but I think that kind of depends title to title and probably how it performs too. So everyone will get a chance to see it sooner or later is the good news. Hopefully. I mean, it sounds like it's a return to form for him. I mean, he hasn't done since last days of Disco was 98. Damsels in Distress didn't seem to be that well. I received, and that was many years later, 2011. Yeah, uh, it was okay. And then, you know, finally, Love and Friendship. Uh, hopefully, it's a return to form for him. And he has Beckinsale and uh, Chloe yeah. Sabini, or Sevigny. Yeah, he joked that they're the only movie stars he knows, so of course he <laughs> asked them back. It's funny. <laughs> All right, well, let's go to the next film, Spine number 808, 
the Kennedy films of Robert Drew and Associates. And to lead the conversation here, Aaron will be uh, discussing these films. Boy, these are, uh, <laughs> these are, it's quite, quite an addition here. Quite a timely addition. Yes. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to touch on that. Uh, it's, it's almost impossible not to, uh, you know, you have a, a, a film called Primary, which is about a primary race in, uh, to, in 1960 between uh, two uh, Democratic candidates. Uh, one's a populist and one's, uh, I, I guess you could say an establishment, but uh, uh, Massachusetts, uh, rich family, wealthy family, uh, and kind of a rock star, too. But it's, uh, yeah, it, it is interesting to watch this today in the, you know, when you're, I, I don't know if you guys have just been watching Criterions all year, but there's also a presidential election going on. Uh, one primary looks to have just wrapped up and another is still kicking a little bit, but looks close to done as well. Uh, so, and I don't know if everybody got a chance to watch these four films, but primary especially is is really uh, startling just it, to compare with uh, with what's going on today. And, and I'm not going to get into a big political diatribe. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we all have our, our opinions, but, uh, but it, there are some things happening that, you know, there's, I guess just, there's a lot of sniping this, this election season, uh, not just from one candidate, but from a lot of candidates, uh, uh, even on, on both sides of the race as well. Whereas, is this one, uh, you know, you have, again, you have Hubert Humphrey is, uh, kind of a, a, a Midwestern farm-oriented uh, kind of a grassroots uh, Democrat, whereas you have a Catholic JFK, and, and Catholicism is a big factor, or is a factor at least, uh, where he's you know, from the big city, from a big family, and he's actually seen as like a celebrity. He he gets the big crowds, but uh, there's really they don't bash each other. There's no real, uh, uh, I guess, repartee. In fact, later they support each other and. Uh, Humphrey is involved in the, uh, the the Kennedy campaign after he wins. So uh, the, the the movie, yeah, there's actually two versions. There's the uh, Robert Drew version, which is the um, the hour-long documentary, which is cinema verite. And then there's a, a shortened version uh, by uh, Richard Leacock, which uh, is a 30-minute version. And they're actually um, quite a bit different, too. The the Drew version is really cinema verite if, as we know it. Uh, the, you know, if, if you've seen Maisel's or Pennebaker, you've you would recognize this uh, this formula, and uh, and it's it's very interesting. It's very fly on the wall. You you see these people in their element, uh, which is is odd, you know, because we know uh, especially Kennedy, of course, is is iconic, and uh, and some of us don't know Humphrey too, and uh, and and actually Kennedy does have a very larger than life personality. He's he's a, quite the orator, uh, and and we do see that, uh, but. Um, you also see, uh, and the Leacock version is is at the one I think that was initially aired on TV because these were not too successful uh, initially, or this one was not. But it's more, uh, it's truncated, of course. It's half the running time, uh, actually less than half. But it's uh, it's it's more just the highlights of the, uh, and and actually there's some some scenes that are different as well. Uh, they they include some um, different speed there's actually a, a television interview in uh, the leacock version that's not in uh, the the drew version but uh it's it's quite something something to see uh of course uh mazels uh albert mazels and pennebaker were assistants or cameramen uh they, they it was they actually had a very um i, I guess progressive or uh, innovative technology with their cameras. They, they were more mobile and they were able to get into really the face of uh, these politicians. 
and to really capture them like uh, like really documentary docu- documentaries had uh, not captured before. Uh, so th- they they really do get a lot of uh, access. Um, it's uh, really something, and and you can tell there, there's one scene where there's a big crowd, and uh, they told uh, I think it was Maisel's here. They told him just to hold the camera up uh, on top of your head and just capture the whole moment. And that's actually one of the best scenes of the film, where Kennedy is going through uh, a big, uh, a huge audience at a rally, and you can just see everybody flocking to him and just being in, in awe of him. So, yeah, it's it's something. Now there there are three other films. Uh, there's um, the the second one is a little kind of like a greatest hits. Uh, <laughs> it has uh, some elements of primary and then some other. Uh, uh, events going on uh, in the the presidential uh, campaign. Uh, it's called Adventures on the New Frontier, which actually I, I wasn't as uh, blown away by, but it, it was a good companion piece. And then there's Crisis, which is a uh, which is not about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but about a, a crisis with uh, two uh, two Af- African Americans trying to get into the U- University of Alabama. And so that one, uh, there's more of a narrative. Uh, there's more of a, a a beginning and end, whereas the primary is more, you just see something going on and actually the, um, it's just one primary in in a large election cycle, whereas this crisis is the entire, um, ordeal. And, uh, and it's actually crisis is, is a good movie as well. I, I'd say that primary are definitely the two highlights. And then the last one is a, a very short, uh, documentary called the faces of November, which is really just the funeral, a uh, very somber movie. Uh, and it really captures a lot of tears. Uh, it's uh, uh, not much narrative at all. It's it really is uh, verite um, at the funeral. And of course, we've all uh, prob- most of us have seen uh, Kennedy footage at a funeral. Uh, but this one is uh, more close ups with the faces. Uh, so yeah, I, I thought these were very special, uh, very important, um, very timely. Um, so I don't know. Did you guys get to, to catch any of these? Yeah, I've watched all of them, and and uh, I was pretty impressed. When you first watch it, you sort of say, "Oh, this is just kind of old TV news footage." But you, you, it might be easy to forget just how innovative uh, this style of filmmaking was, and and it really is a style of filmmaking. Uh, this incredible access that they had to uh, these candidates, and and even just this afternoon, I watched uh, Crisis again. And very remarkable in that you've got this very big time showdown. I mean, you think about the political controversies of of our times, and here was one from what was it now? What fifty odd years ago, where um, you had a governor of a state kind of physically interposing himself in the doorway of mm-hmm. a building to block two students from passing through, and you know, so you've got this very strategic plotting going on. And it's just amazing that they had pretty intimate access to both parties in this dispute. You know, here's Kennedy and his brother Robert, the Attorney General, in the Oval Office with their advisors, making some very you know specific plans about well, if he does this, then we're going to do that, and when do we send in the National Guard, and and you know when do we nationalize it, and you know it it gets into the you know the details of the, of the political maneuvers, and then at the same time you've got George Wallace, the Governor of Alabama 
really just kind of laying out his own principles and of course they sound incredibly bigoted and ignorant and and backwards thinking by today's standards by by even even people who might think of themselves as politically conservative would just shake their head and say i can't believe he was serious about this but uh, that was the tempo of the times and of course he was a representative of a very significant uh, portion of the population who were cheering him on and you see some of that as well where he's mm-hmm. getting all the the thumbs up and the high fives you know not not exactly in the same gestures but you know very strong endorsements because he's doing the right thing and his moral certitude that segregation was really uh the proper thing to do and that he was standing on principle and it's just it's it's a very um Again, in in this era of you know Black Lives Matter and and all the d- the debates about race and 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 uh, and related issues, uh, this just kind of shows you. I mean, this is still in living memory. This is these some of these people are still alive, you know, or or still have a significant voice in in the shaping today's politics. And it's it's just quite an eye opener, uh, both as a documentary of a particular you know, intense era of, of recent American history. It also just uh, quite a quite a, a remarkable collection of films that in some ways, you, you know, sort of like the Bob Dylan uh, Don't Look Back, you, d- you don't have exactly the same access to, to celebrities or politicians or artists of that caliber, um, you know, because we're so much more wizened and cynical and and self-protective um, and, and people kind of take ownership of their own media rather than saying, all right, let's just let a camera crew come in and show us what we're doing uh, to speak, mm-hmm. uh, you know, president speaking this candidly uh, in front of an open you know, microphone and camera just doesn't really happen anymore. So it's uh, quite a treasure that we have this. Yeah. I think the closest you can, you get is uh, the war room is also one criterion. Um, there's also a really good one about Cory Booker called Street Fight. I would re- recommend people see, uh, which is, of course, just that's a, a mayoral campaign. Now now he's a, a senator. But uh, yeah, an- another thing from these features is uh, the, the Kennedys said that they thought that they were on the right side of the history. And, uh, and you know, I'm sure pe- some people don't like the Kennedys, but, uh, but I think they come off very well uh, in these, in these um, uh, films. And, and I do think they were on the right side of history, whereas Wallace, I think, was more grandstanding. And uh, and, and actually, this this event was put him on a national stage as well. Uh, one of the extras I thought was really interesting, uh, you, you mentioned people people are living, is uh, there was a, an interview with uh, Sharon Malone and Eric Holder. And Eric Holder was uh, the attorney general in the Obama administration. And when I saw the name, I thought that was interesting, him him being on a feature. But I didn't realize that uh, Sharon Malone is the sister of the uh, one of the students there. Uh, unfortunately, she has passed. And they're married, uh, Sharon Malone and Eric Holder. So that's his connection. So they actually, and he became an attorney general, and uh, I, think, I believe it was Vivian uh, Malone. Uh, she actually worked for the attorney general. So that, that was actually a very, very fascinating interview, and not the kind of that you usually see on a uh, Criterion edition. You don't usually get uh, people that have held office. Going off of what Dave was saying about, you know, people being so much more closely uh, careful about their, you know, their campaigns, much more so than what, you know, the Kennedys let out uh, in the, you know, the glimpses in, in primary, you know, like, is anyone making 
documentaries like this now, I mean, it would be it would be so hard, if not impossible, to make something like this with the current primary that's happening uh, as we as we speak. Well, you know, now they have so many handlers, and 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 really, if you think about it, the uh, in primary. The speeches they give, those were probably stump speeches. They're very good speeches, but they probably had made them, you know, a dozen, two dozen times already, and they're de- definitely pandering to the audience. Uh, now you see that you see you can see these on on YouTube, you can see these on CNN, uh, you know, you can see everything about candidates, and they're very, very controlled, and every action is, uh, you know, mon- monitored and and uh, and criticized, judged. So yeah, I think the, the candidates probably wouldn't want these, this today. They want to control their, their um, well, most of them want to control yeah, I, their... I mean, um, I guess like the closest <laughs> that we get is maybe their Twitter feeds, you know, where they're kind right. of speaking, you know, in some people's cases, maybe they're speaking more off the cuff than others, but, uh, or, you know, like on, I uh, when they... No idea <laughs> who you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, also with uh, YouTube and stuff, I mean, the campaigns are putting them out, but there's still... I think with just the amount of cameras out there, there's so many like small kind of glimpses into Canada's life that you could probably assemble all these videos that either people put mm-hmm. up or the campaigns put up, and you could probably form kind of an interesting documentary narrative around them. Yeah, yeah, they're on Meet the Press, and they're on the Today Show. They're on all all sorts of you know, and, and they have rallies. Uh, you know, the Bernie Sanders rallies have twenty thousand people. They're huge. So, yeah, yeah I, they're shaking hands along the lines. I mean, people are taping mm-hmm. everything these days, so like that footage is out there. But I think a, a verite in the style, like a, a true fly on the wall, uh, like uh, like Drew and Pennebaker and Mazels and all the others. I, yeah, I think you're, Ryan's right; it'd be impossible today. It's fun watching this and thinking about how. So Miranda right now is five, and she's in the middle, and she's not really aware of this uh, primary at all. I mean, she's watched. Some of the stuff, I think, when Hillary made her announcement, and I'm sure Charmaine has shown her some Bernie Sanders stuff, but um, my mom would have been five in 1960 when the, this primary was going on. And so it's fun to kind of think, oh, wow. think back to, so she was born in 55, and so she was uh, five as this, you know, this campaign was, uh, this primary was going on. And it's just fun, a fun little bit of trivia to like think about in, in comparison and, and the way that these two things played out or are are playing out now differently and ryan i I noticed you saw the leacock version did did you like that one as well Uh, yeah the 30 minute one is is a nice little cut uh i really liked the robert drew in his own words documentary that was on the the release um yeah i think you know people could almost start with that just to kind of get an idea of what they're in for just to because that really i mean i guess if you watch these movies first and then go in and watch the documentary you get a better idea of like you know um what was changed and why and you know like you said that they they needed to make this shorter cut for television and so um they you know uh leacock went in cut it down and i think it was i forget who who was talking about it in the in the documentary but someone was like you know it's it's perfect in in the way that he cut it down i think it was drew actually I, yeah and in fact, I, I think drew said it was his favorite film and and leacock said the same uh course I, I guess you can understand why he would uh, but they said that it was not everybody else's favorite so i i guess uh i i, I of course i prefer the longer more uh, you know drawn out and slower uh, where you really get to experience things or let the candidates breathe um, but it, it was a different take and I, I enjoyed it it's one that i think a lot of people might skip over if they uh, didn't know it was uh this different 
but I would recommend people watch both. Definitely. Uh, we have to mention that this was kind of teased at in the wacky New Year's drawing, and uh, in that discussion, mm-hmm. Aaron, you were you were prompt to uh, point out that this was you know maybe the JFK clue that we see here in the in the drawing. Yeah, I'm not taking credit. I think hmm. I read it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I also have to mention uh, that Josh, in one of his four criterion considerations, chose primary uh, many years ago. And uh, it's so nice when, you know, often our four criterion consideration posts are kind of um, forgotten about. And it's nice when they actually uh, come to fruition like this. So. Congratulations, you know, Josh, Josh. is a fine uh, connoisseur of uh, documentary cinema, yes. so uh, he's mm-hmm. got his sensibilities tuned, mm-hmm. and that was a great call. That oh, was a tremendous set, too. So, um, so yeah. And it's got a, uh, it's, uh, a booklet. Nice to, to have that. I mean, uh, I, I think for me, I, I haven't watched A Brighter Summer Day yet, but for me, this is, uh, I mean, for an early year, mid-year uh, release, this one, I think, takes the cake. They really knocked it out of the park with this one, with the amount mm-hmm. of films that you get supplements it's a, a really nice package yeah my only quibble is uh the the commentaries were not really commentaries and uh, and i actually didn't enjoy them as much they were more just interviews as the movie's playing uh, and i don't know if anybody else watched it but it's still worth watching but it doesn't really connect to the movie uh, but yeah no i, I think they're a tremendous tremendous release uh very stacked and i, I agree this is uh, already on my list of uh of favorite films uh, soon to be surpassed by La Chien. <laughs> <laughs> Called it. All right, well, let's move on now to spine number 809. This is Christian Petzold's Phoenix. And to discuss this film tonight, David, you'll be taking that on. All right, yes. Well, I am the uh, keeper of the Criterion chronology, so I'm here to say that this is the most recent release in the Criterion collection. This <laughs> is uh, the very last one on the list as of today and judging by the pace at which I'm blogging or reviewing them, I may never ever get to this one. So this is my chance to talk about Phoenix, which is a 2014 release uh, in Germany. I think it was uh, also kind of made its big splash at the 2015 Toronto International Film Festival, where it kind of found its following and, and has kind of, you know, hit the both the festival circuit and kind of the uh, you know short release indie film theater circuit, and I actually had the good fortune of watching it last summer. Uh, just a recommendation from a friend. I had not really even heard of Christian Petzold or had any real great awareness of this film, but I said, oh, you know, this looks like an interesting one. So, and my wife and I went to the one of the local independent theaters here in West Michigan. And uh, I was pretty impressed, and I, I remember saying to her, especially after the, the end of the film, uh, as we were walking out, I said, yeah, I could see this being a Criterion release someday. <laughs> and I sure didn't expect it would happen that, uh, you know, the following year. But uh, it's a pretty pretty cool, um, maybe easily overlooked or, or kind of in the, in the sideline from some of the, you know, kind of more celebrated or famous releases. Uh, but I think this is a very worthy addition, so let me just tell you a little bit about why. Uh, I guess the synopsis, this is a World War II Holocaust movie, but it really keeps all the horrors of war and concentration camps and all of that pretty much off screen. This is uh, really about uh, what happens after all the calamities have have run their course. Uh, It's about a woman uh, named Nellie. She's a woman of Jewish uh, heritage. Uh, a nightclub singer uh, back before the war had taken its toll 
and uh, she is arrested and brought to a concentration camp. She survives the ordeal, but uh, at great personal cost, not just the psychological torments, but actually physical wounds. Her her face is terribly disfigured uh, as, a, as a result of being shot, and uh, she is kind of rescued after the concentration camps have been liberated, and the survivors have been, you know, kind of gathered up by people, you know, anxious to help, and uh, she is the recipient of some facial reconstruction surgery uh, that, uh, you know, brings her back to sort of a presentable, you know, uh, face, but but it's not her face. And so she's going through this really horrible ordeal of having her life basically stolen from her, and yet she's not dead. She's continuing to live, but her identity is is mixed up. Uh, she's a she's a trauma and abuse survivor, and she's trying, however she can, to put her life back together. And in the process, she's befriended by a a, a Jewish woman who uh, is kind of a part of the uh, the Zionist movement, I guess. You know, trying to reconstruct a Palestinian state. And there's a little bit of that theme kind of going on below the surface, but she. Uh, She's also trying to get back in touch with her husband, uh, the man that she was taken away from. He's not Jewish. Uh, he and she were both active in the Berlin nightclub circuit, and she she finds her way back to him, but he does not recognize her. And just because of the you know the horrors that she's lived through, she just can't come right out and say. I'm your wife. It's a bit of a preposterous setup, and and it's certainly a vehicle for all kinds of questions about identity and and relationship, and you know, just this. It's like kind of this personality crisis that she's going through, um, but. But because the husband recognizes a certain surface similarity to his presumably dead wife, he come up, comes up with a scheme by which he can groom her to be a replacement and uh, would then qualify for a very substantial inheritance that is just sitting there in a Swiss bank uh, unclaimed. And if he can say, hey, she's my wife and we're back together and we're here to collect the money – his proposal to her is that they would just split the loot and get on with their lives. So it's a very elaborate con job that he has in mind. Meanwhile, Nellie is sitting there kind of aghast that her husband doesn't recognize her and is wanting to use her as a tool in this, in this kind of uh, scheme that he's, he's cooked up. That, that's the premise. And, and you, you get all that fairly early on. So I'm not really spoiling a whole lot. But it's it's a very powerful tale. It's I think it's especially uh, poignant for couples who've maybe been together, who have a little bit of history, and and maybe want to use this uh, this film and this story, as alarming as it is, as a bit of a catalyst, just to talk about <laughs> their own history, their own relationships, and <laughs> and however you want to approach it. Uh, there's just a lot of food for thought in this film. So subject matter is 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 kind of heavy but it's not you know over the top it's 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 gripping it's fascinating in some ways it's predictable but in some ways it's it's just full of surprises and interesting twists and turns uh there's also a very uh you know respectful nods to cinema history uh if you read any of the reviews you're gonna see a lot of references to vertigo uh to a few rossellini films like germany year zero and stromboli uh some of these are mentioned in uh 
uh, the liner notes as well. Uh, there's also kind of a film noir style, and and some of the supplements really get into kind of that that lineage that uh, Christian Petzold, the director, drew from. And uh, you know, so th- so there's there's a there's a kind of a nice cinephile vibe going on here. This is this is a very uh, welcome to me, uh, sort of a balance from all the sensation and all the spectacle of of big budget Hollywood movies. It's nice to see, you know, films that are made nowadays that that are that are based in reality that have some kind of psychological edge to them, uh, but are but really are a great showcase for acting and cinematography without all the the whiz bang special effects and all of that stuff. Uh, this is a this is a beautiful presentation. It's a cinemascope uh 2.39 to 1 ratio, so it's super widescreen. You got pretty big thick uh black bars on the top and the bottom of your image on your home monitor there. But uh, really really uh, a nice presentation. Um let me think some other things here. Uh yeah, the supplements really I think give you a pretty good background on the making of the film the the artistry uh that went into it um i was not aware like i said of of christian petzold and and nina haas uh the the lead actor female actor in this film but they've apparently got quite a partnership uh they've made six films together which uh petzold kind of characterizes as two trilogies so where they go forward from there uh, remains to be seen but as this is a very fresh take uh, from kind of the European art house tradition, it's it's a nice addition to the Criterion Collection. Uh, also nice to see some German cinema coming from directors who are not named uh, Fassbinder, Vendors, uh, uh, or, or Schlondorf. So you know, it's kind of a kind of a, a a fresh take on what's happening in German film these days. So. Yeah, that's my quick take on it. Does anybody have any uh, reactions who haven't seen this film yet? Yeah, I saw this film when it played in theaters and again towards the end of last year and was really taken with it. I didn't really care for Petzl's previous film, Barbara, mm-hmm. uh, but this I thought was a really rich experience. And it it's kind of working in a mode that's kind of exhausting me now. It, it, you'd read it as very uh, heavily allegorical in terms of uh, kind of the post-war life of uh, her husband trying to kind of ignore everything he's done the way that some portion of the uh, German population wanted to kind of ignore the histories of the war. And then she's trying to reinvent herself the way that uh, the Jewish population was trying to reinvent their culture and kind of reclaim their position uh, as a, for themselves and also on the world stage. Um, but it's so draped in this like great melodrama and uh, film noir and, horror and all this kind of uh surface level stuff that really kind of pushes it along and draws you in in this really powerful way yeah still i still think about this film quite a bit yeah yeah and i think allegory and metaphor i mean it it is a film that sort of has a reality base to it but you're right you step back and think well that's a (laughs) there there are some some leaps of faith you got to take for the plausibility of this as really happening uh to, to be maintained but I think the performances are, are pretty exceptional, and it is. It's a just the themes are very haunting and and uh, yeah, just very compelling. Just uh, yeah, again, I, I you know I work with uh, survivors of abuse and trauma, so uh, her experience, while you know historically horrific and and appalling, uh, 
isn't too far from some of the experiences that I know that people that I work with have have endured in their own way. So uh, there, there's a lot of power in this film, and I'm I'm really glad that Criterion. Uh, got a hold of it and uh, added it to the collection i'll uh, I'll, I'll echo um that what you just said david because i really need to revisit this film i didn't uh, i did actually watch it on netflix and uh, we'll be watching the criterion edition a little later because i don't know if it was for me um just the expectations because this film had a lot of buzz uh, at the end of last year i kept hearing from critics you got to check this out from 2015 you know before you make your list etc you know the nods to vertigo and i had a hard time with it and i i think it's it's me it's not the film uh because of the the believability uh, i i just had some some issues with that i, I think with the the backdrop of the Holocaust and World War II, uh, some of that believability. Maybe that's why I, you know, I had that uh, that trouble. Um, so I, you know, I, I definitely need to revisit it. Um, I, I, I guess I would say when I was thinking of Vertigo, I didn't have the same kind of uh, believability issues. Of course, that's one of the greatest films of all time. So <laughs> it's, you know, you know. <laughs> well, and the fact is, Vertigo has been pretty much canonized by the time any of us got around right. to seeing it. So we we are kind of drawn in i, I mean I, I i do feel that there is that kind of uh halo around these these towering works that you know uh, there's artifice all over i mean citizen kane has the same thing there's all kinds of implausibilities about that movie but you, you revere it for what it is because you're kind of set up to expect right. that way. This is, you know, this may never register on that level. I don't want to say this is, you know, 2014, 15 citizen Kane or vertigo, but, but I, you know, that, that first take is going to be like, <laughs> what is this? This is kind of preposterous, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, just go with it and let it, yeah. let it and do the its ending thing. is lovely. You know, it, it is a lovely ending. So I mean, everyone talks about it. It, it would be, I mean, I know why they don't do it, but it would be almost helpful if they would go back before the Holocaust happened to show you some of their relationship and maybe get an idea of what, you know, how he saw her, um, you know, to help maybe justify how he acts afterwards. I mean, I know that would kind of take away some of the power of just setting it completely after everything had happened and letting their performances show you, you know, how they are feeling right now. Um, but it, it might've helped a little bit, I think maybe going back hmm. a little yeah. bit. Could have used that. Yeah. It did have some logical problems and I, and I, I kind of agree with uh, Ryan, I'm sorry, with uh, David and Scott that they didn't really bother me quite, quite that much. I, I kind of saw them as allegories for, uh, for the bigger picture. Um, but I, I guess if they, if they'd gone back, that might have been tough, tough to reconcile. Uh, but Anyway, I don't want to repeat what you guys said. I just want to say that I love this cover, mm. and uh, I think this is my favorite cover of the year so far. Uh, with the and, and having seen the film and and seeing, you know, of course, uh, the train sequence uh, is very important, um, and uh, of course, it doesn't appear as it was on the cover. But I, I think it was a very creative way to um, to encapsulate the film. Do we? Where did that cover come from? I mean, because it. It, that's Nellie Haas. So was this a production or a poster from the film's release from the studio? Or did they get her to pose for this? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of curious to know, and maybe nobody has an answer there, but you're right. It, it's not an image that really appears in the film, so it's certainly not a, an outtake or anything, but uh, it is very striking. Um, even if you don't know what the movie's about, it's just got this allure of mystery and 
smoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it was created by that uh, by uh, Nassim Higson, and mm-hmm. he's the gentleman that did uh, Clouds of Sils and Ria, which is coming out, and uh, also uh, Itumama Tamayen, which had more mixed res- <laughs> mixed reviews to. <laughs> To be, to be polite, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, this one really, I, he just knocked it out. I think, like David said, the the supplements on this release are great. The discussion with um, with the director and Nina Haas uh, is a really nice, you know, conversation about you know their thought process in you know in the character of um, of Nellie and what she's going through and how she you know how she gets to that end point and how it's you know why it's important that she speaks another language and why um you know how she transitions from you know being you know having gone through this um you know traumatic experience but then also still being kind of uh in a in an abusive relationship that hasn't ended um anyway it's fascinating and also the the discussion with the cinematographer i thought was um very interesting like david mm-hmm. said it, he talks about you know the influence of um you know the neorealist stuff and i think he also mentions this other film that i that made me want to um, go check it out. Like the murderers are among us. I think it was another movie that he had mentioned in that uh, little discussion. So, um, yeah, that was that a German film. I, from I think the so. Era? Yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I remember talking about the bridge, which was kind of the return of German cinema into sort of the, the, the Western mainstream. That was like what, 1959, 1960 movie. Uh, so yeah, that would be really fascinating to see German cinema from those immediate post-war years, you know, cause I didn't even know they were making movies in, in, in that time, but, uh, yeah, very cool. Oh, I also want to mention this. This might be Michael Koreski's last, uh, essay in his, now ending a role as this the lead staff writer for a criterion he did the uh the liner notes for this and of course we just recently heard that he's moving over to a new gig at film comment uh magazine so uh yeah i I imagine we haven't seen the last of michael koreski in the criterion collection but uh this might have been one of the last things he did before he uh transitioned to the new role this one was teased at uh twice in the email newsletter and on the wacky new year's drawing all right. Well, uh, I think that's about it. But we have one final release of the month: the standalone break breakout release of *Brief Encounter*, the David Lean film. This is David Lean's fourth film, uh, a movie that I have now loved uh, for several years. Just only, but only during my time doing the podcast, I I was first uh, exposed to it in one of the Essential Art House box sets. I hadn't seen it up until then, and. Uh, was you know i fell in love with it immediately you know for anyone who doesn't know the film is about this uh couple kind of having a an affair of sorts uh at a train station in a you know a little town outside of where they live uh kind of on you know where they where they work but uh are both kind of stopping off at the train station every day and um you know it's this movie is just such a interesting and beautiful uh you know, tale. Um, one that I still love going back to revisit and, you know, having just recently seen Carol, you, it's fun to go back and watch brief encounter to kind of see, you know, where, yeah, where he got some of that from, um, you know, as far as whether or not, so I guess the, the, the question for this release for many folks out there is, you know, if I already have the box set, do I need to buy this Blu-ray? And the answer is no, you don't need to buy this. This is the exact same disc that you're getting in that uh, Noel Coward and David Lean box set. Um, 
And I guess know, it gives Keith Enright a chance to put one more plastic case in the show. <laughs> Did he? Does he do that? Does he go buy the individual uh, releases? He's he's pretty hardcore about those uh, those plastic cases. He's 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 actually uh, exchanged some of his uh, you know the the old uh, dual format digipacks in order to replace them with the uh, with the Scanovo, uh plastic case there. So yeah. That He'll seems tell you all about it. I'm sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that is a baffling uh, behavior, but I, I can I can see that happening. Although with a box set, like you're not saving, like you're just adding uh, space. You're not taking anything away by. Well, uh, but he wants to have the spine numbers in order. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So he he still probably has uh, his old Agnes Varda DVDs, you know, for uh, Vagabond and Cleo from Five to Seven, just to as placeholders. Even though he's got the box set further down on the shelves. Yeah. Um, I guess for, you know, I, I mentioned this last week, I think on off the shelf when we were talking about easy rider, but it is nice to have this as a, its own release for folks out there who might have been otherwise turned off from buying that box set. I mean, you know, whether or not the box set is, uh, affordable or even worth buying all of it, which obviously it is. And I think everyone here would sing its praises and say, you know, these, Mm -hmm. these movies are all fantastic and you should go out and buy them. But the truth of the matter is that like there are many people out there that where buying Blu-rays is all is already kind of a step further than many are willing to take. And um, when you have a movie like this buried in a box set, um, that kind of hides it away from from most people's radar. And now that it's available individually as this standalone release, I think it's just you know um, fantastic. And I'm so I'm glad that Criterion did this. I hope this helps get it into the hands of people who might not have seen it before and um you know the the, the supplements on it are, are are fascinating there's you know an older commentary track you know i wish some of the supplements like you know and i know like the tv documentary about david lean or the profile and brief encounter like you know some materials are um not easily upgraded to hd and so some of them are you know a little fuzzy in standard definition playing on this blu-ray um but still worth watching and still fascinating. And I think this is, you know, still one of my favorite Criterion Collection releases. Um, and now I'm glad that it's available as a standalone, uh, as it's standalone release. Um, I like what they, the change on the cover as well, the, the adding the ticket instead of that little, um, you know, logo title treatment thing that they little flourish, uh, that they added, you know, changing it to the ticket, I think, um, was nice. Yeah, I I love this film, and I actually this was a great excuse to finally crack open that box set. Well, I've already watched two of the the three the four films from the box set, but uh, grabbing this one, I, I watched rewatched the film uh, yesterday, and then I watched some of the supplements and the documentary tonight, and uh, it's just such a beautiful film. And and I'm generally not when I go to the movies, I I, t- I tend to. Um, to not get into sentimentality as much, I, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm heartless, but <laughs> but love stories are not my my cup of tea. Uh, but this one, I think, just really captures uh, an, an illicit love. But I think it does. It's almost unbelievable in in the the time that it takes to um, for that for the courtship and so forth. But they really sell it uh, very well. It's a very believable. Uh, um, the way that the character the actors play it you really do believe they're in love and uh 
And Celia Johnson is just fantastic, almost perfect. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I could not recommend, uh, you know, a lot of people know David Lean. I mean, this is a pretty well-known movie, but, you know, a lot of people just think of, uh, I think he did some movie with uh, some somebody in the desert somewhere. Um, but this this stands right up there with that one and uh, and everything else. Uh, so I, I hope people, if they don't want to buy, if they don't care about Blythe Spirit, just pick this one up. Yeah, with you, Aaron. It, it's, this, is, this is one I, I uh, had come to the same way you did ryan i started with the uh, essential art house box set from my library and then uh grabbed this is a, just a great excuse to watch this film from this box set that i hadn't had a chance to and to revisit it with my wife which was a nice experience because you know it, it's interesting to watch it with uh someone who you're not having an illicit affair with you've been with for <laughs> quite some time but it's it is <laughs> such a, a love story and it even um yeah, it has so many images from it that I think would work as a cover. I was thinking about what Ryan said about the cover. There's just so many there of the two of them in different uh, locales, and I. It even feels like even from the cinematography, um, it, it in some ways it feels like a uh, romantic um, noir film. If that makes any sense, it just it looks like it's shot like a uh, a noir film uh, would be. And so I just I, I was. Taken with it again, seeing it in HD in black and white. This is the best way to uh, to watch it. It's beautiful. And I should add, uh, having watched it, I did not watch this with my wife because I don't want to give her any <laughs> ideas. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you start getting getting that little tear rolling down the cheek, and she's just giving you the side eye, like, "What's going on there, mm-hmm. Bob?" Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, but I don't, no. also I don't want to have to go to any train stations locally. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. Well. Uh, I think that's about it. You know, there's, um, I think this, this month, you know, Aaron mentioned, uh, Phoenix being his favorite cover of the month or of the year so far. Uh, I would have to say this month overall Mm -hmm. has probably the best month of, of covers, uh, that criterion has going so far. I mean, I I know I love, and I I say that might say that all the time, but this month is really strong cover wise. (laughs) And, uh, I was, I, you know, all of these would make great posters, I think. Uh, on a wall. I'm with you. Great covers this this time. Um, I for the life of me racked my brains over what the what a theme might be to kind of connect all of these films together, and I could not come up with anything. I'm sorry, guys. Hmm. I was thinking about it when I was talking about Kennedy, but I don't think you could get a yeah. more diverse, uh, eclectic uh, collection of five uh, releases in a month. I, I guess the only thing that kind of connects them is that they all, at some point, speak English in all of the films, even Phoenix, because of the song. <laughs> <laughs> and so this might be the most English-friendly month uh, of the year so far. Uh, some people would say that Whit Stillman is not English. <laughs> that's that's Harvard. <laughs> Boy. The only thing I could think is maybe, and of course this comes from Phoenix, but uh, identity maybe, um, you know, in, in, in relation to each film with, uh, you know, the, the two in Barcelona, they're, they're so different, but, you know, as cousins and the, you know, the uh, anti-American sentiment. Um, the identity of the the folks in you know like Jean Arthur and are finding her place uh, within those men and um, you know just the uh, overwhelming kind of identity and persona of um, you know uh, JFK and uh, really um, the the wife in uh, Brief Encounter I'm forgetting her name now uh, played by Cecilia, uh, Celia Johnson really I mean through voiceover trying to find herself and understand herself in this this relationship so i guess i don't know (laughs) i'll throw that out there 
Yeah, that that was Laura. Uh, her name is Laura, and I, and I also have to say, I, I usually don't like movies that have uh, a heavy reliance on voiceover narration, but because it's really her inner monologue and it's her perspective, it really, really works mm. in Brief Encounter. So that's my my last words on that movie. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, I think this is a pretty solid month. I hope people go and find these films and don't forget about them. Um, or if they do, you know, I, I'm sure films like these will be you know, rediscovered over the years. Um, especially Phoenix, because I, I don't know if, you know, while that movie was celebrated, I don't think enough people are talking about it. At least the people that I follow on Twitter, you know, apart from the people on film Twitter, don't talk about this movie enough. Well, I guess I'll go around here and uh, we can talk about where we can be found online and uh, we can start wrapping things up for the night. So, David, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Do you have anything you wanted to promote uh, as far as, you know, writing online or um maybe a, a commentary track that you might have done yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well i i did my uh my little 2001 space odyssey freak out a couple weekends ago so uh, yeah it's been kind of fun getting some responses to folks and uh, again i just want to say i just sort of had this notion let's just plug in the the mic and start talking <laughs> as a, as 2001 started rolling so it was a fun little experiment and i do appreciate the uh the 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 kind words that people had i'm going to be uh, writing about salesmen which uh, kind of follows in that tradition of the drew kennedy documentaries oh, another yeah. slice of uh, direct cinema they don't like cinema verite uh, the mazels brothers kind of disdain that term that they're direct cinema mm-hmm. so right maybe we'll analyze the distinctions between the the the, the two uh but that'll be my next thing uh, that's uh yeah, boy, talk about coming around from the cosmic vistas of 2001 to the, the Bible peddler door-to-door salesman. <laughs> that's a great uh, movie, though. Yeah, I can't it, it really is. It's, it's an incredible, uh, and that's the thing. Well, I got this new job. Uh, I won't get too personal, but it's been really definitely occupying a lot of my brain power as I kind of get into a new role. So I'll, I'll get my salesman thing going hopefully this weekend. <laughs> So you're, you're selling Bibles, David? Uh, well, you know, uh, in a way, yes, I'm, I'm preaching the Criterion Gospel. Nice. There you go. <laughs> May I interest you in a in a in a, in a little conversation there, uh, Scott? What about you? Um, I know you just had TCM Fest. Do you have any? Uh, is there anything people can go read online about your kind of experiences there? Uh, not for reading, but you can listen to Battleship Retention, where we went over everything I saw there. As much as possible, anyway. I saw a lot of stuff and had to cram it into a two hour conversation, but it was a great weekend. I always forget how much fun it is because I get so stressed out leading up to it, but it's a good time. Uh, and then mm-hmm. I also wrote about Captain America Civil War there. Uh, we just did a huge episode on Rivet for Criterion Cast that should be going up shortly, if not already there. And uh, we'll be talking about Armageddon in a couple of weeks. Very exciting. Uh, Aaron, what about you? Uh, anything you want to promote here on the show tonight? Well, as I already mentioned, we have an episode of uh, Only Angels Have Wings that probably is already up if you're hearing this. I think it'll probably go up uh, the day after recording this. And uh, then we're going to do the Manchurian Candidate. looks like we have a brighter summer day. We have some some other... uh, What else do we have, Mark? Uh, Boy. (laughs) The player, I I know we're we're going to do... um, (laughs) Yeah, the player. uh, White material. We we actually just talked about the schedule, so we switched it around. Oh, World in a Wire. It looks like we're going to delve into a little Fassbender. So, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, Mark, was there anything else that you wanted to kind of mention apart from the Criterion close-up stuff? 
No, that's it. I just and, and thanks again to Scott for for hosting Revat. Um, I hope folks check that out. That was a, a fun conversation. But yeah, awesome. That's it. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining me tonight, everyone, uh, listeners. Thanks for uh, downloading the show and kind of giving us an extra week. We were planning on recording this last week, but I'm glad we got an extra week to kind of watch uh, some of the other films and dig into the supplements a little bit more. Um, when they release a bunch of stuff at the fourth to the last day of the month, it kind of puts hmm. us on notice. <laughs> so we got to give ourselves a little yeah. extra time to digest all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, and we got a box set this yeah. month. So last last day of the month too. <laughs> yeah, so we might. Uh, so the mm-hmm. next episode of Criterion Cast Chronicles might also come a little bit later than we had initially promised, and in saying like, "Oh, it'll be out," you know, the first week or so after the month is over. You know, it might be the second week. <laughs> All right, everyone, thanks again so much for downloading the show, and we'll see you next time.